stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Yeah, welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome to this hour of the program on this Monday afternoon. A lot going on today. We had a big announcement today from the Premier, overshadowed a little bit by the apology he uh, offered today with regard to that uh, outdoor gathering uh, on uh, Tuesday of last week, the balcony at the uh, so-called Sky Palace. And of course, we've got some criticism coming from within his own party, a couple of cabinet ministers, even now former uh, MLA, former Wild Rose leader Brian Jean today posting a, a Facebook post calling on Jason Kenney to resign. So this has turned into to quite the situation. Uh, but the press conference uh, from the premier today was about the fall referendum on equalization. The uh, wording of that, and this is a motion that's going to be introduced in the legislature today. The wording of that question will be, as we learned today, should Section 36.2 of the Constitution Act 1982, Parliament and the Government of Canada's commitment to the principle of making equalization payments be removed from the Constitution? Now, obviously, Albertans voting on that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Not sure if we want to open the door to that, though. What if B.C. puts uh, a referendum to their voters? Should federal jurisdiction over pipelines be taken out of the Constitution? Maybe a bit of a Pandora's box, although maybe Quebec's already opened that Pandora's box. Certainly, Alberta pays more into Confederation than it receives. That's about a lot more than, than equalization. Frankly, ending equalization wouldn't change the amount that we pay in taxes, wouldn't change the amount that, that comes back to Alberta. There are other ways of addressing that. I'm all for it. Well, the group Fairness Alberta has been focused uh, on these issues. So joining us to talk a bit more about the announcement today and some of these uh, broader questions about what needs to change in this country. Bill Buick joins us, Executive Director of Fairness Alberta, fairnessalberta.ca. Bill, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Um, just in terms of the question, I don't know if the, the question is going to matter all that much. I, I think it's a fairly straight up yes or no question. But what, what did you make of that today? Yeah, I mean, uh, the the angle that they're taking on this is that uh, if, if there's a clear question and a clear result on a constitutional matter, then that triggers uh, negotiations with the rest of the country. So uh, the, the question had to be sort of that direct and, and clear and connected to the section in the Constitution in order to start that process. So I wasn't surprised. Okay. Uh, I mean, aside from that, I mean, you know, the, the idea remains the same. That we're going to put this to Albertans. We're going to vote. I think we suspect it's probably going to be pretty overwhelming in, in one direction here. What, what do you hope that this will accomplish? Well, I, I feel like it's already begun to accomplish what I hope it accomplishes, which is starting a national conversation and getting people to pay more attention to this increasingly large program that is deeply flawed. And it's it's taking a pretty significant sum of money from, from people who pay taxes in places like Ontario and B.C. and Alberta and and just handing blank checks to only five provincial governments. And given the fact that over the last five years, uh, the provinces have come much, much closer together in their sort of overall uh, fiscal ability, uh, and that's because of the downturn in all the energy economies. So the provinces need equalization less than ever. It's paying out more than ever. And when you see Quebec having balanced budgets, but 
only because they're getting a $13 billion check from, well, not only, they also have high taxes, but they wouldn't have the balanced budget without that $13 billion check from the federal government. It's really frustrating when provinces like Alberta and Ontario and BC are struggling as much as they are right now. Well, it's interesting, and I, I, it was uh, Kim Bossengul, who was uh, one of the signatories of that firewall letter 20 years ago, who described it to me this way. He says, you know, there's big E equalization and there's small E equalization. The the former is the program. The, the latter is just, you know, the whole imbalance that exists in the country. And, and we're focused mm-hmm. too much on the program because, as I said at the outset, we could change equalization, we could cut it, we could cancel it. Wouldn't change what comes out of Alberta, wouldn't change what comes back to Alberta. I I kind of take a bit of issue with that. Um, they could decide we are cutting the equalization program in half because it's not needed as much as it used to be, and we are rebating every province $10 billion, you know, divvying up that $10 billion each province, or we are putting that $10 billion towards debt re- reduction. Well, uh, which deficit. You know, Have you seen the deficit lately? Yeah, exactly. Uh, well. so, so that means less future debt payments for Albertans. So there, there's... There's, there's all kinds of ways that uh, they could either directly give back to the have provinces who've contributed so much and got nothing from the program, or they could put in a fiscal stabilization side to it that would be a way for provinces like Alberta to get money back when, when we have a terrible year. So there's ways, anytime you take $10 billion out of free checks to certain provinces, everybody's going to benefit except those provinces, I suppose. Well, maybe. Look, I, I think there's there's ways of saying to Ottawa, like let's let's reduce taxes, or let's put money into the fiscalization uh, stabilization program, the fiscal stabilization program, or let's, you know, increase health transfers uh, to provinces or other matters right. that could have a direct impact. To me, and and maybe it's just my sense that maybe the end game to a lot of people is just. Quebec gets less, that this is about not necessarily benefiting Alberta, but just kind of smiting our enemies here. Yeah, I don't I don't see it that way. I mean, I, Quebec is by far the biggest beneficiary of the flaws in the program. Um, I think if you look at where the sort of the, the general provincial wealth has been tracking over the last five years, there's probably a case to be made that New Brunswick and PEI are far enough below the average that they should get some help. But Quebec really isn't. And if you make a few changes to the formula as it is, their payments could disappear entirely tomorrow. So it is uh, somewhat about that, but I think legitimately. And then um, I, I just feel like there's, you know, the, the premier, you know, you could say, what else could he do? Well, he could get every, uh, go to the premier's conference and get them all to agree to help Alberta. Well, he did that with the fiscal stabilization right. changes, and it kind of led to almost nothing. We got a little bit of a increase available once in a while but there really wasn't anywhere near the provincial agreement to help alberta on this uh he could try um you know there's other means of doing it but it's just i guess kind of so easy to ignore uh alberta on these issues and the political class hasn't really come through for us so i feel like something that's a little more grassroots and and showing the country that it's about Albertans and not about, you know, oil companies or about a politician or about a government. It's about how much Albertans have given and how little we feel like we're getting back.
Yeah, I mean, in terms of Quebec, Quebec's a big province, so it gets a big check. But um, on a per capita basis, New Brunswick is, I believe, the biggest recipient. And those are the two provinces that have the, the lowest median wages, which speaks to, to fiscal capacity, the ability to generate tax revenue. So you say Quebec could be cut out altogether with some tweaks to the formula. I'm, I'm not sure how that would be. Uh, well, the fact that the hydro uh, subsidies that Quebec offers are not factored into their, their capacity, so they, they, they basically subsidize the electricity rates, which is fine. But when you look at the fiscal capacity calculation, uh, it treats that hydro entity as if it couldn't make any money. But obviously it could if they didn't subsidize the rates. You put uh, fair rates on there, and their, their check drops about $7 billion. Uh, Yeah, but what's fair? Adjust- Aren't their rates pretty comparable to, to BC's? Um, I, I haven't compared to BC, but I know compared to Ontario and Alberta, they're much lower. Four cents about from Toronto and more than that from, from Alberta. So if you just do that four cent to make Montreal equivalent to Toronto, then their payments drop in half. And if you also, you mentioned the lower salaries, but that also means that they don't have to pay their employees as much. Their public service employees don't need a uh, a high salary to keep up with their neighbors. And so there's all kinds of uh, parts to the formula that, that measure how, how wealthy you are, but there's nothing in the formula that measures how much you need to provide those relatively equal services. And so Trevor Toome, uh, I, I kind of pushed him on this, and he, he agreed to put a, a CPI adjustment into the equalization formula on his simulator, and that drops Quebec about $5 billion more. And in fact, Ontario starts to get a payment if you adjust for how much services cost. So there's some some pretty common sense changes that would both, A, reduce the overall size of the program, which means taxpayers as a whole are spending less on it, and B, would definitely reduce Quebec's. Do you think it's a fair criticism or is it a distraction when we note that our current premier, who's pressing all of this, was a key part of the government that gave us the, the status quo? Why didn't Jason Kenney press for these changes, do you think? Well, I don't know what happened at those cabinet meetings, uh, but um, around 2014, I think what Harper, uh, Prime Minister Harper did instead was take eliminate a really unfair element that was equalizing health transfers, and so Albertans got about a billion dollars more out of that. But, uh, I mean, that's kind of part of the problem. Um, it's, it's, there's, one, there's one major party in Ottawa that tends to write off Alberta, and then there's another one that often sometimes takes it for granted. And so, you know, to, to tell a conservative minority government how exactly they could have completely rewritten the equalization program is one thing. But to say uh, that was back when Alberta was booming, uh, that's back when Alberta maybe didn't seem so urgent to get some of our money back from Ottawa. But that's all changed since 2015. And... And times, you know, political things have changed and economic things have changed. I don't know if you saw this or not. There's a city councillor and a mayoral candidate in Calgary who's uh, calling on a, a referendum here in Alberta that Calgary pays more to Alberta than it gets back, that Alberta has its own system of equalization, that Calgary needs a fair deal. And maybe she's just trying to make a point here, but I think it's true. I mean, there, there are states in the U.S. that are have states, essentially, that pay more in, into that system than they get back. Isn't that ultimately going to be the case, either within a country, within a province, within a municipality? Wealthier areas are going to pay more in taxes than they get back in services. Yes. Yeah. Um... 
And I think people should always be kind of vigilant about uh, how much their neighborhood in the city is getting and how much their city in the province is getting and how much their province in the country is getting. Because if you don't speak up for yourself, no one else is going to. Um, but at the, on, the, on the other side of it, uh, there, there is not, it's not like Calgary is being treated with disrespect. It's not like the provincial government is putting up barriers to Calgary being able to succeed economically. It's not like, um, and it's not like uh, the, the, the provincial government is uh, really honing in on municipal responsibilities. And the reason a lot of the distribution is happening is because the provincial government is trying to basically do every municipal program. So that's kind of how it's different at the federal level. The, over the years, the federal government has just become way too involved with provincial jurisdiction. And so equalization is one thing, but then that's only sort of $3 billion out of the $20 billion Albertans send to Ottawa that gets sent to other provinces. So there's, there's a lot of ways we could fix this. <clears throat> Sorry. And I feel like uh, getting this equalization referendum going will start generating those conversations and get, uh, get folks to pay attention. We'll see if it does. Uh, more is mentioned, fairnessalberta.ca. Bill, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. All right, there you go. That's uh, Bill Buick, Executive Director of Fairness Alberta, fairnessalberta.ca. Welcome back. It's been over a year since Canada's worst ever mass shooting unfolded uh, over a weekend uh, in April of 2020 in Nova Scotia. And still a lot of questions uh, about Gabriel Wortman's uh, rampage and how the RCMP responded to this. Now, one of the ways in which this whole situation was exacerbated was the fact that Gabriel Wortman was driving around in a replica RCMP cruiser. And for a long time, nobody knew that, or at least the general public. And there have been a lot of questions about when the RCMP found out about that. So this began on the night of April 18th. Now, the RCMP maintained that it wasn't until the following morning, April 19th, they became aware of what Gabriel Wortman was driving. Wortman's common-law spouse, Lisa Banfield, had escaped, ran into the woods, came out the next morning to find police. Some newly released 911 calls paint all of this in a very different light. That it certainly appears that the RCMP knew about the replica cruiser a lot sooner than they've let on. So it seems like there's a big problem here for the RCMP's narrative. Instead, though, a lot of the conversation has been about the leaking of the tapes themselves and whether our next guest made the right or wrong decision in publishing them. There have been calls for an investigation into these leaks. But we're kind of overlooking, I think, an important point here in what this information tells us. There are three 911 calls in question here. Frank Magazine, which has a reputation, I think, is maybe more of a notorious uh, satirical publication. But I think they've done some important, albeit controversial, journalism here. FrankMagazine.ca. But joining us to talk more about uh, this whole situation, the reaction to it, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, Frank Douglas, or Andrew Douglas, rather, sorry, who is uh, publisher of uh, Frank Magazine. And I guess we should clarify, Andrew, this is Frank Magazine Atlantic Edition, correct? 
That's correct. Yeah, we're based in Halifax. Uh, we were, we're the original Frank. We started in 1987, and then uh, a couple of years after that, the Ottawa Frank started. And but we've been separate for uh, for decades. Uh, so yes, we are the uh, Halifax-based uh, original Frank magazine. Okay, so you obtained these uh, 911 audio tapes, as it says on FrankMagazine.ca, from a confidential informant. Obviously, this is one aspect of the story that the RCMP is uh, very much interested in knowing more about. But tell us what you can about, you know, obtaining these tapes and the decision then to publish them. Well, I mean, the the decision was uh, was a no brainer. Uh, I mean, and it's and it's and it's really unbelievable that um, that there are people in in this business uh, in in the in the journalism business that are questioning the decision to publish them. I mean, this is the um, this is the definition of public interest journalism. Um, we have uh, these calls uh, reveal information, brand new information, uh, saying what the RCMP knew and when they knew it. Uh, the RCMP say that they didn't know definitively that Gabriel Wartman was driving around port um, uh in an RCMP vehicle until 6.30 in the morning when uh, his common-law wife, Lisa Banfield, came out of the woods. But these 911 calls reveal that there were three calls uh, between the hours of uh, between 10.01 p.m. and 10.25 p.m. on the evening of April 18th. Um, identifying uh, him by name, saying he's a denturist, he lives in the neighborhood, and all three of the calls talk about him driving an RCMP vehicle. And yet they didn't know he was driving an RCMP vehicle until 6.30 in the morning when Lisa Banfield told them. I I, I can't square that circle. Right, and I think a lot of people are having trouble squaring that circle. So these calls all happen very close together. This was on the evening of April 18th. And all three, mm-hmm. as you say, identified the police car that the shooter was driving. Lisa Banfield had hidden the woods overnight. So the RCMP's official version is that until she emerged that morning, April 19th, they didn't know about the replica car. Well, that's not entirely true. Um, we um, There has been information um, they did know that Gabriel Wartman uh, collected uh, replica cars, and they had that that he had some replica cars. Right. But they they have maintained that they believed until six thirty in the morning that all of his replica cars had burned up in a fire in his warehouse that started when this whole thing began. Um, but the interesting part is that this warehouse fire was going on at the time of these 911 calls, and two of the three callers actually mentioned that this warehouse was on fire, this warehouse containing all of these replica RCMP vehicles. So I'm not sure what the RCMP want us to believe. Um, it, it sounds like that their theory is that after, after uh, by the time, uh, what, quarter 11 or so on April 18th, when he got tired of killing people in Portapic, he just drove into his warehouse, which was already on fire, and killed himself and burned up. Um, which obviously doesn't make any sense at all, and obviously the RCMP don't think that. So it's 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 impossible to know how they came to. Um, uh, it, it's impossible to know what what they think we're supposed to think they were thinking. Right now, look and again. I mean, you know, the, the, there's valuable information on these tapes, obviously, and understanding what happened, but. We're listening to them after the fact, and we know that some of the voices we're hearing are, are people who didn't survive. There's there's also the uh, the 12-year-old son of one of these victims is one of these 911 calls. They are hard to hear, right? They, they are gut-wrenching. They are heart-wrenching, all of these things. I mean, obviously, 
One option would have been just writing a story describing what's on the tapes or transcribing the tapes. But why did you feel it was important to also publish the audio? This story needed maximum publicity. Um, we wouldn't be having this uh, conversation if we didn't publish the audio. I would venture a guess as to say not. Um, if we uh, if we had just run a text version of the story, it would have gotten virtually it would have gotten very little notice. Um, the RCMP certainly wouldn't have come out with a statement uh, condemning us, condemning our source, uh, saying that they're going to look at whatever charges they can uh, lay uh, about uh, how we obtained uh, the audio, how we uh, how we published the audio, how the source obtained the audio. Um, there, um, I think it was. I mean, there's no question. It was 100 uh, percent the right move to uh, publish the audio. What about the reaction from some of the family members? And, and some of it's been, I think, fair to say, pretty angry reaction. Some of it has been pretty angry. And, of course, we, we get that. We understand that. Uh, some of it has not been very angry. Some of it has been very supportive. Um, both Paul Palango, who wrote this article, and myself have been talking to family members who are 100% behind us mm-hmm. um, and think we did the right thing. Um, but... Listen, I mean, obviously, we published this knowing that there were going to be some people that it would just be gut-wrenching to listen to this. I mean, it's gut-wrenching for everybody to listen to it, but but imagine if it was, uh, you know, a loved one, the, the voice of your loved one that died minutes after, um, you know, uh, this uh, this audio was, was recorded on the 911. But we ultimately decided that uh, it was too much in the public interest to to not publish the audio, and it was something that we had to do. You've since, though, changed the availability, I guess, is, is how we'll describe it, because uh, frankmagazine.ca, there's, there's a write-up, there's transcript that, that are available for people to read, but the audio has, has been moved. Explain that. That's right. Um, we, um, we decided early on two things. Number one, um, everything was going to be in front of the paywall, the audio, the story, everything. And number two, we were going, we had to give the families a signal that this was happening. So we contacted their lawyer. We said, listen, this is what we have. Uh, please give them the heads up. Um, you know, if they want to talk to us, great. You know, even if they wanted to, to listen to some of it before it was published, fine. Um, so after it was published, um, the family's lawyer came back to us and said, listen, we, I, I respect this, this, the, the importance of this story and everything, but, you know, I'm, I'm the lawyer for the families, and I just want to respectfully ask if you could take down the audio, leave up the, leave up the story, leave up the transcripts, but take down the audio. And I said, no, we can't, we can't do that. Um, but I got to thinking what we could do in order to maybe mitigate this for the families. And the only um, option I saw was to take the audio and put it behind our paywall so it wouldn't be open on the open internet for anybody to listen to. Um uh, so, so I mean, I didn't want to be accused of uh, profiteering, obviously, but I thought, well, I might as well offer it, and, and we'll see what they say. Um, surprisingly, they came back and said, you know what, That's please do that, yes. And so that's what we did. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, you've alluded to, I mean, the RCMP seems more interested in trying to figure out how you got the tape than, than addressing some of the questions that this tape raises. Have they addressed, though, this discrepancy in terms of what they've said about when they knew what Wortman was driving versus, you know, what this this tape suggests? 
No, absolutely not. They uh, it, when, when there were when the mainstream brought them uh, questions about uh, what the audio reveals, they just stuck with the talking points they've uh, they've stuck with uh, the entire time. Uh, you know, we only learned when Lisa Banfield came out of the woods at six thirty in the morning, that sort of thing. So, no, they haven't addressed it at all. All right. Well, much more is mentioned at uh, frankmagazine.ca. Uh, really appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon, Andrew. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me. All right. There you go. That is uh, Andrew Douglas uh, with Frank Magazine, uh, the Atlantic uh, Bureau of Frank Magazine. He's the uh, the publisher. So that's their call. That's their decision. So you can go to frankmagazine.ca. You can read Paul Polanco's write-up. And look, Paul Polanco is a veteran journalist, covered the RCMP for years. We've spoken with him before. He's done work for McLean's and other media outlets. And so he uh, handled the journalism side of this story for Frank Magazine. So there's a really interesting story he's written here. There's the transcript uh, of the 911 calls. And it's now behind a paywall, but the audio is still there. So you would imagine that uh, this, this is all very difficult to listen to. There's, there is some value in these tapes, though, in understanding what happened. These calls were all made within 25 minutes, a 25-minute span on April 18th. All three, and you hear it on the calls, the RCMP, have these are legitimate calls. No one's calling the authenticity into question here. All three 911 calls identify the shooter as driving what looks like a police car. So the, the version of events where the RCMP didn't know that aspect of the story until the next morning doesn't hold any water, does it? So we can all get worked up about the fact that somebody leaked these tapes to Frank Magazine. We can get worked up about the fact that Frank Magazine published the audio. That's fine, I guess. But let's also get worked up about the fact here that the RCMP have really not been forthcoming about how they've handled this whole situation. And why is that? Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. So coming up this fall, we'll be marking three years since cannabis was officially legalized in Canada. And it kind of feels like we've all moved on from the debate. Maybe not everybody is necessarily uh, on board with it, but, you know, the sky didn't fall and uh, we, we've kind of moved on. And we've definitely have in Canada a burgeoning uh, cannabis industry. Now, there, there have been some bumps along the way, obviously. But I want to take a moment to just sort of look at where things stand now and, and what more we can do to really unleash this industry. Because certainly if you look across the country, and, and this stemmed from, you know, the very uh, cautious approach I think we took to legalization, that there's still a, a lot holding back the industry. And so it's a time to revisit all of that. Well, this is a conversation that our next guest uh, is involved in. Uh, Nathan Meissen is uh, chair of uh, Canada Working Group of the Chamber of Commerce, also chair of the uh, Alberta Cannabis Council and CEO and founder of Diplomat Consulting, uh, to talk a bit more about uh, what's being done, what's being looked at to really move the industry to the next level. Nathan, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Really excited to talk about uh, third year of cannabis legalization. Always enjoy our conversations. Yeah. So, I mean, if we, we sort of take a step back and look at, at where we're at and how far we've come since uh, October of 2018, what's your sense of how much the industry has grown and evolved since then? Well, so, you know, I argue with politicians for a living, so I always like statistics because, you know, people in that world are always oriented that way. So let's yeah. let's just do a couple of conversations about that. So 
in 2018, when this conversation started, two countries in the world were talking about cannabis legalization. Uruguay, who of course went first, and Canada. Um, as of uh, last week, it was 68 nations around the world were talking about cannabis legalization of one form or the other. Wow. Um, even in the last year, from March of uh, 2020 to March of 2021, from Statistics Canada, um, the economic contribution for the cannabis sector to the Canadian economy went from $13.3 billion to $16.3 billion. And that's just for cultivation and retail. That's not ancillary businesses. That's not the security companies, the packaging companies, the lawyers, the accountants, all of that stuff. That means the economic contribution to Canada is already larger from cannabis than the forestry industry, paper manufacturing, livestock production, and the country's entire arts and entertainment sector. That's pretty incredible growth in, you know, three, not even three years of legalization. Yeah. And that's why we've been getting in our own way. So it's really interesting to think, what would it be like if we did? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, as you say, when, when you know, we moved ahead with legalization uh, in 2018, you know, the, the U.S. was far behind us. It kind of feels in some respects maybe that as a number of states now have really quickly moved to legalize that, that some states are jumping a bit further ahead than us. Oh, for sure. Well, let's talk about, you know, how do we create uh, differentiation in a COVID recovery world, especially for an industry like tourism and hospitality that has been waylaid? Well, we're one of the few federally regulated states uh, in the world that could do cannabis, tourism and hospitality federally legalized. We're not having those conversations at a provincial or federal level yet. You know, I think we'll get there. But San Francisco announced today there that cannabis lounges are a thing las vegas was last week illinois michigan and new york state have all put in their cannabis legalization bills that consumption lounges will be allowed within months not years months and we're not even having the conversation and considering we went first you know that's a sector that could be worth tens or hundreds of billions of dollars not only domestically but that expertise that we create here that can be exported abroad but we have to move because people are quickly passing us by. And I think that's really unfortunate. And I think your statement at the beginning was really is really true. When you look at polling, most Canadians have moved on from cannabis legalization, right? Like they don't even talk about it. In fact, the fastest growing demographic for cannabis consumption in Canada is seniors, right? Um, so why are we not moving it forward? Well, unfortunately, we're really still stuck at the politicians and the bureaucrats and the influencers who are representing the, the tropes of the past. And it's not the reality with Canadian citizens. And we're losing dollars um, that could come back into our country if, if we could just get the politicians to realize that Canadians aren't where they're at. Yeah, and that's what it felt like at the time. Like, even though this, this was the right decision after, after mm -hmm. you know, way too long that we just we were way too cautious with it. It almost seemed like we were just trying to imagine various kind of worst case scenarios. What if this happens? What if that happens? Mm -hmm. And we sort of came up with all of these rules just to guard against all of these potential scenarios. We're well enough into this, aren't we, Nathan, that we can see that look, the sky didn't fall. Cats you know, are can, dogs. Right? You know, we can, you we know. can get out of this phase, yeah. I think, can't we? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. When you look at that growth, right? So, um, the statistics came out from um, uh, the Chamber of Commerce um, in the state last uh, last week that cannabis will contribute into America um, on the the whole supply chain um, 92 billion dollars, and they're not even federally like illegal yet. 
$92 billion. Like, this is Canada's internet if we get out of our way because we were first. But we're quickly losing that opportunity. And to your point, you know, one of the best things that ever happened is that we actually built the review in the legislation um, because it allows us to actually look at, you know, politically it made sense why we were so strict, right? It does. Like, when you're first in the world, when you're actually violating international treaty law because of it, because we were when Canada took this move, um, go slow so that you create restrictions that can be lessened in time. Well, the problem is we haven't lessened those restrictions. So let's have that conversation about what is the opportunity and let's create the opportunity to talk about jobs, not one province or federal ministry or ministerial mandate that we can find includes the jobs of cannabis in it. So nobody actually looks at the jobs or economic impact. Let's even just start there. That would be a pretty easy fix. And that would potentially at least allow our government to talk about that opportunity. Yeah. And look, I mean, obviously, provinces have some say on this, and I, I think mm-hmm. Alberta's done pretty well compared to other provinces. But a lot of this does also fall to, to the federal government. So when we look at the need to you know, remove some of these shackles, who, who is that aimed at? Well, I think it's both. I, I think all three orders of government are involved. I think, you know, the conversation of what cannabis can be is different than what it is now, right? Because when you think about, we, we still primarily think of cannabis as you know, an inebriant, something that gets people, you know, high or has an inebriant effect. We haven't talked about the municipal possibilities. We haven't talked about the agricultural possibilities. We haven't had all, any of those conversations about what legalization opens up, not only here, but around the world. Again, 68 nations around the world are now going through cannabis legalization, and they're calling Canada and asking us what we did well and what we didn't. Mexico legalized in January. They took 80% of our regulatory framework and cut out the 20% we didn't. Well, what an incredible opportunity about businesses from Canada to scale into a market that potentially in the future, those conversations can be under NAFTA. So, like, it's really the opportunity for not just retailers and cultivators, but the supply chain, which because of how we did Canada's legalization, really we built up an international supply chain domestically that we can now export to the world. But we have to get out of our own way at a municipal, provincial, and federal level. You know, we still disproportionately charge cannabis companies an incredible amount of money and regulatory hurdles to come to market. And again, when you look at other jurisdictions around the world, around the world they've learned that lesson and they're moving much quicker than us. And now Canadian businesses are looking south of the border or internationally for opportunity. And that's really unfortunate because we're going to lose that first mover advantage if politicians don't talk about it at all. Now, so if we look, for example, at some of the rules and restrictions around marketing and promotion, is that is that mm-hmm. federal law? It is a federal law. Federal law. The province interprets the federal law, right? right. Because the, the feds create a framework and then the province has to interpret it. So there is some malleability between the two, but primarily the responsibility lies at the, at the federal level. And is that also true with regard to, you know, the concept of having uh, consumption cafes? That is actually at a provincial level. And this is one of the reasons where, you know, Alberta did lead the retail market. Like AGLC um, did an incredible job moving over our experience in privatized retail or in privatized alcohol to privatized cannabis. We have the world's four largest cannabis retailers in the world housed in Alberta, Spirit Leaf. Um, Alcana with their Nova and Value Buds, um, High Tide and Fire and Flower. 
It's four of the if you had four of the world's largest anything, except for cannabis, you couldn't get a politician to stop bragging about it. But we won't even talk about it. High Tide went public on the NASDAQ last week. That's a major accomplishment for a Canadian uh, company. And, you know, that's some of the movement that we need to see. I think the... Um, the the environment has uh, has continued to evolve, but we need help at a provincial level to make consumption loans happen so that we can see some of the success that we did in retail so that we can lead, again, the country, but the world as well, out of this province. And we can do it. Is it realistic to think we could see some changes even as we get set to mark the third anniversary this October? Well, let's just think about it this way. So let's just take cannabis drinks. Right? Cannabis drinks are federally regulated, provincially sold, provincially regulated. Why can't we treat them just like alcohol? But let's not do anything else. Let's just do drinks. Why can't we see a cannabis festival that does cannabis drinks at it? Why, why can't that be done in September? All we're asking for is to be treated the same as, as alcohol in some regard when it comes from a regulatory framework. But we need to see um, somebody take that leap that it isn't, you know, um, the end of days to have cannabis in our society, especially because it's already legal. So let's combine it with a struggling tourism and hospitality structure and see what we can build. And that should be something that we should prioritize in Alberta as we look to unlock the opportunities here at home um, to create a cannabis leadership for the world based in Alberta that hopefully takes place prior to legalization because the rules are already there to scratch out liquor license and put cannabis license. Yeah. We'll leave it there for now. Nathan, we'll see where this all goes from here. Appreciate you making some time for us this afternoon. Thank you for the conversation. Look forward to the next one. All the best as well. Uh, Nathan Meissen is uh, chair of this Canada Working Group with the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, looking at ways of you know really boosting the industry. He's uh, chair of the Alberta Cannabis Council, CEO and founder of Diplomat Consulting. So some interesting thoughts on where the industry's at here almost three years after legalization and you know what more it can be if we're willing to just get out of its way. Conversation around a pipeline situation uh, that for the most part, we really haven't been paying attention to. And we probably should be. You know, we've been focused obviously on Keystone XL and Line 5 and Line 3, Trans Mountain, obviously. What about the situation with the Enbridge mainline? And this is, uh, I mean, on the surface, it seems like a fairly typical uh, toll application. But as our next guest says, this is hugely consequential. Had a piece the other day in the Financial Post uh, under the headline, Pay Attention, Control of Canada's Oil Hinges on a Hearing Few Even Know is Happening. So what's going on with the Enbridge mainline system and why is this of such importance? Well, joining us to talk more about this uh, situation, very pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Samir Khan. Uh, he's an independent business uh, strategy consultant, 25 years of experience in the energy industry. He is also director of RS Energy Group. Oh, Samir, it's so great anymore. to have you with us here. Well, not anymore. Hey, no, not anymore, Rob. Sorry. Okay. I, I just oh. wanted to make sure I didn't get hurt, uh, that got hurt. Make note of that. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's talk about what's going on here with the uh, Enbridge mainline and this toll application. Sort of set the stage for us here in terms of you know where things are at and what this all means. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
Every, periodically. So this, this, is, this is the normal part of how the main line operates, um, is that every now and then um, there's an application to kind of, you know, set and reset how much the pipeline charges. Right? Um, this one is a little bit unusual. Well, it's extremely unusual uh, because what Enbridge wants to do is actually change the entire um you know, like change entirely how the pipe uh, is contracted, and it sounds like really theoretical and esoteric. But let me like like a simple analogy here is that the Enbridge main line is like a it's like a restaurant, right? Um, you make a reservation and you can show up or not, and if you don't show up, that's actually the restaurateur's risk. Um, the other way that you can set up a large pipeline like the main line is to have it be under firm contract. And to, to be under firm contract is to kind of be like a wedding venue, right? Where you have to, you know, you, you have to tell the, the venue provider, okay, I'm having the steak, I'm having the chicken, this is the wine. And, and yet you pay for everything right up front. And if you don't have the wedding anymore, um, not only are you devastated, you're still also paying. Um, and so that, that, that's the key question here. So this uh, all... Basically, is is uh, opera expired at the end of this month? Then, correct? Uh, I'm sorry. Say again. That the the contracting system that's in place is set to expire at the end of this month. I believe. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Um, so so I, I don't follow like the 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 nitty gritty of like when the contract expires okay. as closely, just because like the, the, you get extended, right? Like you just kind of go the way that you're going. Nothing changes until until the hearing is is uh, is, is completed and the, and the regulator has moved. So talk about the importance of this pipeline, by the way, because, you know, as I said, oh, yeah. we've, we've talked about Line 5 and all the uncertainty around Line 5, but this is all a part of this, this Enbridge network, isn't it? Yeah, it is the most important pipeline leaving Western Canada. Um, it carries, I think, it, well, it carries 3 million barrels a day. Uh, uh, just under, um, and probably about 70% of the oil uh, that the basin produces is carried on the main line. Uh, so, so like, it's, 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 it's an elephant, it's a gorilla, it's like, you know, it's, it, it's a very, very big deal. So what are the potential consequences, depending on how this all plays out? Yeah, so this is, this is where the controversy is, right? And, you know, like, if I step back a little bit. So usually it'll regulatory proceeding, you know, it, it, it's kind of like a trial, right? Is the, is the way that I think about it in my head. I mean, I mean, it's not, but it kind of is in that there's, you know, the, 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 the pipeline is making its proposal. And then there's a whole stack of interveners that all have positions on whether it's good or it's bad. And most of the time it's bad because, you know, people want to ship oil for free. Um, and, you know, like it is adversarial setting where, you know, like where you stand depends on where you sit, right? Like the chair that you occupy. And so yeah. it, it's very hard to figure out just like it is from like reading a trial transcript. Well, what's actually going on here? Um, so, you know, like this, this is where like the interpretation, the expertise matters. And really, like there is very little precedent for an operating pipeline to go from a common carrier arrangement to a 
firm pipe, you know, to a firm told arrangement. Because what this does is it transfers all the volume risk. So, again, just imagine that if every restaurant in town, like if 70% of the restaurants in town suddenly decided that they're wedding venues now uh, and got a book in advance and maybe, like, pay a fee in order to reserve the right to show up and eat, um, you, you could imagine the price of dining out would go up, right? Um, yeah. And, and and so this is this is kind of the fundamental issue is that there's a lot of producers in Western Canada who are like, hey, hey, wait a second, we don't have an equal opportunity to sign up for long-term pipeline capacity on the mainline. Um, most mainline volumes are shipped by refiners, and refiners have an interest in low price of oil acquisition. Right, because they make money. Like, like oil, crude oil is a cost to the refiner, and they want that cost to be as low as yeah. possible. Yeah. And so, basically, now in this arrangement, effectively, like what I'm saying, this is opinion, um, which which you know a lot of producers happen to agree with. But my opinion is that contracting the main line in this way and offering that capacity to re- U.S. refiners gives. U.S. refiners an inordinate amount of control over Western Canadian oil prices. Now, and, when we look at the pipelines that, you know, like the, the Trans Mountain, for example, mm-hmm. did, did, and, and maybe that, that choice or that competition when it comes to, to producers, how, how does that impact this situation? Yeah, so it impacts it a couple of ways. So, first of all, new pipelines tend to be built as firm contracts, right? Because otherwise they would just never get built. Like, you can't really make a case to a pipeline company, hey, build a pipeline for me and maybe I'll ship oil on. Like, no, <laughs> no one's going right. to do that. <laughs> so in order to get the pipeline built, uh, producers have signed up for, you know, like 10-year agreements on the Trans Mountain Pipeline in order to ship oil on that pipeline. This is a problem for Enbridge. Um, and it's a problem because of the... Western Canadian oil basin is probably not going to grow very much over the next 10 years. Everybody believes this, right? Like, you, you, it, is, it is hard to find people who think that you're going to, you know, like, I don't know, we grew like, I don't know, a million and a half barrels a day in the last 10 years. It's not going to be another million and a half barrels a day in the next 10. Um, and, and so when Trans Mountain is completed and installed in shipping oil, now you've got, you know, a little over 500,000 barrels a day of new transport capacity out of this basin, and that's going to flow because producers have already paid to flow it. And so those volumes then are going to come out of what the air, what, what ships down the Enbridge mainline right now, round numbers. Um, and so, so it's, a, it's a battle right now because, because now you've got excess pipeline, pipeline capacity out of the basin, Last 10 years, we've had shortages. Now we've got an excess coming up. And it means that that excess is going to disproportionately, again, this is opinion, I believe it's going to disproportionately impact volumes flowing down the Enbridge mainline. And if you're like an Enbridge shareholder, that's a big problem. Well, something to keep a close eye on. We'll see how it plays out in the coming weeks here. Uh, Samir, thanks for yeah. your insight on this. Appreciate making some time for us here today. All right. No worries. All the best. That is uh, Samir Kayant. He's an independent business uh, strategy consultant, 25 years in the energy industry, financialpost.com. You can find this piece, which goes into some of the detail around all of this.
uh, that a simple toll application, as he says, just business from, from Enbridge's perspective, understandably so. He says, for everybody else, this is potentially hugely consequential. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.